LinkedIn presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Bob Muglia is our guest today. He's the former CEO of Snowflake, a $50 billion plus technology company. And he was also the head of server and tools at Microsoft, which is the division that produced Azure, Microsoft's cloud services offering. And it's also the division that its current CEO, Satya Nadella, came out of. Muglia has a new book out called The Datapreneurs, The Promise of AI and the Creators Building Our Future. And he's here to talk about it. But first, we're going to dive into Mark Andreessen's new essay, Why AI Will Save the World, and dive into its arguments and merits. In the second half, Muggly and I will have a discussion I've been looking forward to having for a long time. We're going to speak about the formation of Azure and the conflicts inside Microsoft before it emerged. This is definitely one of the tech stories I've wanted to get to the bottom of, and we're going to hear it from Muglia, who was right there. So here we go. My conversation with Bob Muglia is coming up right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Bob, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Alex. Great to have you. So I emailed you in March 2019, and I was writing this book about Microsoft, uh, actually all the tech giants, but specifically a focus on reinvention at Microsoft. You ran the server and tools business there, Satya Nadella, eventually took it over and transitioned it to a cloud business. And we're going to talk about that. We'll start with AI. We'll talk about that. And I never heard back. And I almost feel bad for sending it at that time because I think you were in the middle of uh, being pushed out as leader of Snowflake. Yeah, I was transitioning out yes. of Snowflake. And I don't remember the email. I apologize for not, I try and respond to these things when I don't remember, but I apologize so, for not, if I didn't get back to No you apology necessary. And I when I saw your name come through that you had a book in, in the works, I was like, all right, this is finally the conversation with Bob. Here we are. You, um, Why do we have a chance to do it now? Of course. And, and you're at a, a very interesting point. You're releasing a book. You actually wrote the book, had some parts about ChatGPT and Dolly in it with a, basically a month after they came out. And now it's being published this month. And it's been amazing what's happened with your previous company, Microsoft. Snowflake's obviously involved. And the discussion has just evolved in so many different ways. So in your book, at the, towards the end, you have some discussions about AI ethics and sort of the rules we want to set for AI. And recently, Mark Andreessen, the head of the VC firm Andreessen Horowitz, who I'm sure our listeners are familiar, familiar with, came out with this post and basically said, we don't really need to worry about any of the worst case scenarios about AI. I mean, I'm simplifying it a bit. But point by point, taking the AI doomerists' concerns and basically saying these are actually fallacies. I know you read the post, so let's just start there. I'm curious what you thought about Andreessen's central thesis. Well, generally speaking, I think I agree with Mark. Let me start by saying that. I mean, in the sense that I am an AI optimist, and he is also an AI optimist. I'm a, I'm a technology optimist, and clearly Mark is as well. And, and I think that AI is going to do incredibly positive things for the world, and we're going to see an incredible set of advances over the next few years You know, with these co-pilots or assistants that are going to help us in so many ways. AI is going to make us smarter and more productive, and that's a good thing. 
And in general, I agree with Mark that there's you know a lot of reason to be optimistic about jobs as well. Although Mark did over, you know, he did simplify it a little bit in that, in that, that while technology has historically always created more jobs than it's displaced, it's very inconvenient and challenging, you know, really the problem actually for the people that are displaced. And I don't want to, and to me, those are the sorts of issues that are still going to be very real societal issues over time. Even if Mark is fully correct in that more jobs are created, you know, we'll have to have to re- deal with the reality that many people will lose some jobs. And I think we've seen that over time. Perhaps it's a great, you know, the transition goes well and there's great jobs ahead for everyone, but I'm hopeful about that. Um, wait, I am wait, a little so bit- let me stop you there for a minute because we will, we are definitely going to get to the jobs situation, but, and, and I'm going to start to read some of these arguments that Andreessen's makes and actually want to get your perspective on yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Because he made a lot of different arguments. Oh, he yes, a, he did. He, he was very, he was very thoughtful in what he put together. Exactly. So he actually splits the categories of the people that are criticizing AI into two different categories. And I think it's very interesting. You're shaking your head. I'm going to read it anyway. He calls it the Baptists and the bootleggers. And the Baptists, he say, are the people that actually have serious concern and really believe in it. And the bootleggers, he says, are people who are kind of doing this to profit off of the fear to basically um, say that AI is dangerous, to say that AI is going to take jobs and to put themselves cynically in a better position. So, and he says, oh, something very interesting. He says the bootleggers always win because the Baptists are just going to raise the alarm and be of, you know, be concerned while the bootleggers with their malicious intent are going to go and say, take that fear and actually turn it into something that furthers their self-interest. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, Mark sort of talks about two extremes of people's uh, approaches to things, and 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 he's not wrong about what he's saying. I, I what I would say, but I think he oversimplified that a wee bit. It's a little bit too simplistic. I have a slightly different. What I would say is, and, and I think Mark Mark referenced this, but not explicitly. And I think it's really worth referencing this explicitly and, and distinguishing between two kinds of fears that people have about AI. One is the fear that AI, which is a tool that people will use, and people will use it for bad things. And Mark very clearly said in his piece that that's going to happen, and I agree with him on that. In general, we have built a lot, as humanity, we built tools from the very beginning. Tools have enabled us to be as productive as we are in society, and, and obviously it's, it's how we live our lives. And many tools have positive and negative uses, and AI is absolutely one of those tools. Um, that can be used for for ill and and can can be used for a lot of good. And AI is a very powerful tool, and so you know the, the the good and the evil could be very powerful. But I have a lot of belief that we will fully control that, that the right things will happen. Mark says that no new legislation is required. I'm not quite as optimistic about that as he is, that, that no new legislation is required. I think there may need to be some. But I do share some of Mark's concerns that we could over-legislate this. And and put too many restrictions in. And the worst concern I would have, and Mark reflects this in his in his his blog, is that we restrict the uh, the the all of the innovation that is happening in the open source community right now, because I think that's where the most interesting innovation is happening in AI. And I think it would be a real bad mistake if through through perhaps well-intentioned but but mis, mis, misapplied government regulation makes it so that only the largest companies have the money to deal with all of the regulatory concerns. So I, I do have some right. of his concerns on that. Well, but this is, 
AI being used by people as a tool. Exactly. Okay? And the, the second thing that Mark addressed, and he kind of waved this off, and I'm not with him on this, is this idea that AI will eventually become a, an intelligent entity that is effectively the equal of us. Mark says that's not going to happen. He certainly seems to imply that that's not going to happen. I'm not so sure about that. And when I talk to a bunch of the AI researchers, they're not so sure about that either. So that's an interesting question. And that's where I think the, the bigger and broader concerns of existential risk come in. This is not a concern, I think, in the next five or even 10 years. But if you go out longer, as AI gets smarter and smarter, could it do some things to deceive us? Are there ways we could lose control of it? While I am an optimist that we will not lose control and that we can always pull the plug because these things are, in fact, digital circuits running in data centers that at least for now we still control, um, I do think there is something that, that needs to be thought about there. So that's one area where I disagree with Mark. Yeah, and I think he, so he does say that they are going to be, I don't think he precludes the idea that they're going to be on par with us intellectually. I just think that he believes that there is, you know, a, a kill switch because you can unplug it the same way you can unplug a toaster. And I, let me just read his his argument to what you would say and, and sort of we can go back because, by the way, like, I think what he's trying to say broadly by writing this piece is that startups, you know, because that's who he funds, are going to be hurt by this fear, which he calls a moral panic, because what's going to happen is the established companies will use it to legislate barriers and then eventually lead that will lead to regulatory capture. I'm sure you, you know, who ran a company uh, basically from close to no revenue to something that's now, you know, just a few years later, $59 billion market cap. You understand the idea that the bigger companies want to box out the smaller companies by manipulating these fears. Absolutely. And I also understand as a very large company, yeah. what can happen when government comes down on them. Cause I was very at much Microsoft. at Microsoft and part of Microsoft during the DOJ lawsuit. So the regular, I'm quite familiar with the regulatory regime okay, exactly. and some of the downsides associated with it. And so I have, again, I share some of those concerns with Mark and I think it would be terrible if that happened. And I don't think there's a reason for it to happen either. But it can happen. I was just talking with someone today, just like these things logically might not make sense, right? Regulation that boxes out smaller companies might not make sense, but narratives are really important here because they are the stories that end up, you know, either pushing something forward or getting it blocked, blocked, and then you can end up with suboptimal outcomes, even though there's like consensus. Consensus means nothing when it comes to government and regulation. I, I, I do agree. There's concern yeah. about this. I I, I think that that if you when we really want to focus on on issues with AI, I am much more concerned not about what's going to happen in the next five years, but will happen say ten to fifteen or twenty years from now as these things get smarter and smarter, and we want it. We have to think about how to treat them and how we work with them because I do think they'll get smarter. And and while I do agree that we can pull the plug. Eventually, maybe we can't. I mean, there may come a day when they control enough of what they are, they're doing that we won't be able to pull the plug. And, and that's why I do think we need to make sure that their values are are aligned with what society believes in general are appropriate values. Values are complicated. Everybody has different values, but there are societal values and societal norms. And it's appropriate as we as we create these things, and we are creating them. That, that as they get smarter and smarter, we make sure that they accept the norms that humans think are appropriate, which is why I think that Asimov's laws are, are quite relevant in 
in the conversation about you know about AI that is in, is is AGI and potentially super intelligent AGI AI. Exactly, and he does. Yeah, he does go through some of the arguments about why the fact. Like, let me just read his argument to you in terms of why he believes the fact that we might lose control of this to be um, not feasible. So he, he basically says AI is math. And he goes, my response to their position is non-scientific. What is, is that it's non, is that their position is non-scientific? What is the testable hypothesis? What would falsify the hypothesis? How do we know when we are getting into a danger zone? These questions go mainly unanswered apart from you can't prove it won't happen. And in fact, he says these, their, their position is so non-scientific and so extreme, a conspiracy theory about math and code, and is already call, some are already calling for physical violence, that I will do something I normally do not do and question their motives as well. What, just respond a little bit to what he's saying in that, in that part. Well, first of all, I, I'm gl- I am heartened that there is an outcry of people that are asking questions about this. I think that's a good thing. And the the conversation that we've been having across society for the last five months, six months, because it really all started in December, right after ChatGPT shipped, um, that's when this conversation got into high gear. I think it's a helpful conversation. The concerns about regulation that Mark has, I think, are all very relevant. And I, I would, while I do recommend that we be thoughtful about this, and in particular as as the very large language models that get developed, say say GPT-5 as an example, and it's ilk that are coming out from the other, other uh, tech companies, that we think through what those capabilities are and we be thoughtful about how they benefit all of us and not and, and will not take us down these negative directions. I do think all of those conversations are important. I also worry about the potential for overregulation and overreaction. And I, I, it's sort of funny because my position on this is shifting relatively rapidly as time goes on because I, in, in January, I was worried that people wouldn't think this was important enough. And I'm clearly no longer have that concern because there's been so many articles and so much outcry about this. And frankly, so many scientists that are really deep into the technology expressing their concerns. Now, Mark can assign motives for this or not. I, I'm not trying to assign any motives associated with it. I think people are just generally concerned, genuinely concerned about what they're doing with the realization that there are some incredible, that this is very, very powerful technology that will affect society. Um, that's why I always come back to saying, you know, there's a lot to learn from Isaac Asimov and the things that he talked about, because he really did project a society where we coexisted with intelligent machines. And he thought about it in his stories. He wrote about many of the challenges that are associated with that. They're really parables that, that, that provide us with some guidance here. And so I think that's all very relevant. Um, I am. I do think that that it's appropriate for government to be worried about this and talking about this. Should regulation be going down now? I think it's a little early. I definitely think it's early because I don't think we know what to regulate. And I do think we have to be cautious. I think we'll learn a lot as well from what other parts of the world are doing. Europe has historically taken a more active regulatory role in technology, and it would not surprise me if that's also the right. case here. Yep. And we already saw Italy make some moves in that regard. Well, they, they rolled that back, though. So True. Well, let's talk they, about, so you mentioned the job thing. So let's talk about the job thing for a second, because I, like, I do want to, let's get into this discussion a little bit about his arguments against being worried. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm taking a side. I just think it's interesting to discuss so he talks about how automation, the automation can kill jobs. And he goes, the core mistake of the automation kills jobs doomers, uh, that they, doomers keep making is called the lump of labor fallacy. 
This fallacy is the incorrect notion that there is a fixed amount of labor to be done in the economy at any given time. Neither machines do it or people do it. And if machines do it, there will be no work for people to do. And he goes, when technology is applied to production, you get productivity growth, an increase in output generated by a reduction in inputs. The result is lower prices for goods and services. As prices for goods and services fall, we pay less for them, meaning that we now have extra spending power, which we would use to buy things. This increases demand in the economy, which drives the creation of new production, including new products and new industries, which then creates new jobs for the people who were replaced by machines in prior jobs. The result is a larger economy with a higher material prosperity, more industries, more products, and more jobs. Your thoughts? I agree with all that. I mean, he's totally right. The only thing is this one element he left out, which is time. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and these things happen over a period of time. And, and what's happening now, and this is an incredibly important point, is they're happening very quickly. When, you know, when, when in the past, when technology affected jobs, it happened over years and decades. Um, it's not going to take decades. It's just not. It's months, it's days, months, and maybe years we're talking about. And so, you know, if in fact we have automated, we have aut- automation to the point where autonomous self-driving cars become a reality and Uber and all of the other, the other, other car fleets replace their drivers with with robots, that is going to displace the jobs of a lot of people that that use that particular uh, field as almost, you know, either it's their primary income or it's a last ditch income. You know, so there's real human displacement issues that I think are quite real and cannot be ignored in this. I mean, it's very, very important. Over time, Mark is correct. I believe more jobs will be created, but will those people be able to be trained to do some of those jobs? Classically, there's always been an issue in human history with this, and the speed at which the potential for this displacement is happening makes this more acute than perhaps past ones in the past. That I agree with 100%. The the way that he ends his piece, I mean, he ends his piece with this like cute thing about how the people who build the AI before are legends and the people who are building AI today are heroes, which is like kind of an interesting assignment to people without, you know, to say that each and every one of them fit into that category. Is, and I think it cheapens the word legend and hero, but that's a lecture for another day. Um, I'm curious. ending of his piece though. I mean, you know, it's a little cute. Yes. Ending, so. I'm curious. He makes a point right before that talking about how the U S and China are basically interlinked in a war over AI and his, theory is basically go ahead and win from the U.S. standpoint. Your perspective on that? I think that the, you know, well, first of all, I'm worried, you know, again, I said I have no, I have some concerns about, of an existential nature, you know, in a long-term period as AI gains super intelligence in particular, assuming that that happens. No guarantee it happens, but it sure looks like it's going to happen. Um, I have bigger concerns, honestly, about the situation with China and the United States. I think, you know, I'm I'm a Cold War baby, right? I was born in the 1950s. Um, I ducked and covered when I was a child, right? In, in elementary school. I mean, I remember the nuclear, the nuclear fear that we had. I grew up with that over my over my life, you know, it's one of the things that 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 people were afraid of. It's been almost a non-issue since 1990 after after the berlin wall fell we've really forgotten about what that means to to live in a world 
where we have these large existential, okay, enemies, because that is an existential situation. Nuclear war is an existential thing. The Taiwan situation is an extremely scary situation right now. And it has a potential to put us in conflict with China. Right. But the, the broader AI thing is sort of. The AI fits into all of this, okay. though, because in a way, AI is the solution through all of this is that, you know, if it progresses humanity forward collectively, I generally speaking agree, however, with Mark, that we must progress AI quickly because the Chinese, you know, they will have a different, they will have a different approach to this and different, as I say, values are critical. Values will determine what is created. We are creating these, 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 um, this, these systems, whether they're tools or entities, we are creating them and they have the values that we put in them. And it is no, there's no question that China will have a different set of values. So I do agree that we need to move quickly. I hope that through all of this, AI will help to bring people together, humanity across the world together, because this conflict that I see coming with China doesn't seem to help anybody. Um, and I'm, and it does make me very concerned. Okay. I'm with you on that. Also, you, you, throughout this conversation, you've said that you think AGI is artificial general intelligence is inevitable. And it certainly seems that way in your book. So I'm curious what makes you so sure of that. And, you know, is that something we, we actually want? Well, first of all, whether, whether we want it or not may not matter because I think we're on a trajectory to get it. No, no, of, cor- you know, of course it matters. It definitely well, matters. You can't just throw up your hands and say it doesn't matter. We built them though. I yes, mean, we did. Yes, we did. And when, we will, just like we will build AGIs if we have the ability to do I so. I think that we need it when we're working towards technological progress. It's not, you can't just throw up your hands and say it's going to happen. This is a decision that people make people are, is a very broad statement, right? I mean, you can have your decision. Look, all these, all these scientists signed that thing that said we should put a six month moratorium on AI. It went nowhere, absolutely nowhere. People ignored it completely. I mean, short of government regulation, which I completely do not believe is appropriate. I can believe that is, would be disastrous. I don't know how to stop it. I don't know how to stop it. Now you can tell me you can disagree and why you know, smart people can say, hey, this trajectory doesn't result in what, what one would call an AGI, which is a, a, a system a, a, that has a, a computer system that has the intelligence of a median human. That's kind of the general definition of an AGI. And, and I, I think we're proceeding on a very well-defined path towards that right now. It's certainly not provable that, that it's going to happen, and, and, and I don't have proof that it'll happen. And I will also tell you that when I started writing the book, I had no idea that it would happen in my lifetime. Okay? I still don't know it will happen. But now lifetime. I believe it. The difference, okay. is, the difference is I lived you know, over 60 years of my life having spent a lot of time reading science fiction as a kid in Asimov, spending a lot of time thinking about intelligent robots. And my entire career has been about making computer systems more intelligent and more productive for people. And I've been able to use the tools that are at my disposal, the chips and the power that they give, the database software, the application software, the development tools, the languages, all that stuff to be able to build, you know, to work with teams to build some really cool products over time. Now, intelligence is available. For God's sakes, computers can respond effectively mm-hmm. to English. APIs, <laughs> English is now an API. Oh my gosh, my head explodes at stuff like this. So 
So what happened to be straight and it, and it's, it's, you know, it, it was, I'll say you can, you can disagree with it if you, you know, if you like, but it's what I believe. I, I spent 60 plus years of my life believing that all this technology was interesting, but I wouldn't see a world where intelligence was actually available to be applied to a broad set of problems. And now it is. Will that result in an AGI? Given the trajectory we're on, I totally believe it. Was it just- Will it result in super intelligence? That's a fair question. That's a fair question. Oh, wow. And then okay. does it result in, you know, in what people sometimes refer to as a technological singularity, which is an acceleration of progress kind of beyond anything we can imagine? And no one knows that, of course. No one was knows it, that, of course. Was it just ChatGPT and Dolly that convinced you? It was all the pieces. The first thing that really got me, honestly, pieces. was 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 the was the was co, was Copilot, Microsoft Copilot. Okay, because that codes first. alongside you. And and yeah. when I realized that that look of all the things that we expected, you know, the 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 technology advances to to drive productivity of developers like that was just it, it people that came out of left field from my perspective that that all of a sudden a computer could assist in writing code such to the point that a developer could get get 40% or more of their work done by a co-pilot AI machine. I didn't see that coming. I didn't no, I do that. speak with, with CEOs. I guess you've seen it in action. I've spoken with some CEOs who said, yeah, we all use it. And I say, well, what sort of productivity increase have you seen? And they're like, still waiting. But the CEOs that you speak with, are they in that same place? When it comes to co-pilot in particular, are they in that same boat or have they actually seen that 40% increase? What I hear from the Microsoft people is is that people are using it all over the place, and that it is you know that a lot of the code that's being written is written by by this um, by the AI by by Copilot. Now it's certainly true that most of what Copilot is writing today is the lower value code, right, right, that that doesn't require the level of intelligence. But you know, but but that's still an incredible productivity improver. And you know, we haven't even begun to see these. You know, right now what we have. Are, uh, yeah, yeah, no, you're setting you're setting me up for for what I'm going to come to, which is the AI, will AI save the world question that that Andreessen. I mean, Andreessen's post is will AI why AI will save the world. So I'm going to give you a minute to speak about that in, in a moment. But the AI, uh, it's very interesting. I've never heard someone speak uh, refer to AI as um, uh, uh, sorry artificial general intelligence as a median human intelligence. Sort of like I feel bad for the people who just are under the gut. Like AI is smart as you is, is as smart as you, but you're too dumb. That to came be, from Sam Altman, yeah. by the way. But I, I also like it's interesting. I wonder like why you think it's possible to reach that point and then not be, reach super intelligence. Because if an AI, which has access to all the information in the world, can become as smart as one median human being, how does that? It doesn't stop. Like can it, can right. it possibly stop that way? Well, I don't think it does stop, right? right? I don't think it does stop. Just get smarter. So, so I'm just saying we haven't proven that we're going to hit what people would call AGI. We certainly right. haven't proven that we've hit super. We'll hit super intelligence. But I agree with you. If we're on a trajectory to AGI, we'll reach. We'll it'll continue to get smarter. And that's where and that's where the concerns kind of come in, right? That's okay. where I do think there are some concerns because you know, because these entities will move beyond us in some ways. And I think that's where we need to make sure that that the values that we imbue into them are consistent with what what will protect humanity um, and protect our lives. Because that I, I still find that very important. <laughs> yes. Okay, so let me now sort of end this segment talking about some of the benefits that Andreessen sees and why he believes AI will save the world. And I'm curious if you agree with him. You know, it seems like you are open to a little bit of the idea that AI could destroy the world, but let's see if it will save the world after I read a few of these. 
So he says, every child will have an AI tutor that is infinitely patient, infinitely compassionate, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely helpful. Every person will have an AI assistant, coach, mentor, trainer, advisor, therapist that is infinitely patient, infinitely compassionate, knowledgeable, and helpful. Every scientist will have that assistant that can greatly expand their scope of scientific research of achievement. Every leader of people, CEO, government official, nonprofit, president, athletic coach, teacher will have the same that magnifies uh, the effects of better decisions by leaders across, uh, across the people they lead are enormous. So this intelligence augmentation be, may be the most important of all. He talks about productivity growth, scientific breakthroughs, the creative arts going through an evolution and AI even improving warfare because leaders will have a realistic understanding of how many of their people will get killed before they go to war and not be optimistic about it and be able to make better decisions. So having heard these arguments, and you read it, you read it this morning, is AI going to save the world? AI is, is a huge part of the, it is a huge part of our world. And together we will work with AI, you know, to, to defer, determine the future of, of, of society and humanity. It is going to have enormous benefits to people. I totally agree with Mark. All the things but you won't go, you won't go to the, the extent of, the of his. Let's, let's, let's talk about killer yeah. robots a little different separately. That one, I'm a little, that one has kind of in its own sort of AI and warfare is a fascinating conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and again, I'm not I'm not such a purist to, to try and say that's never going to happen. I mean, your and old company is his, working with big contracts with the Department of Defense, so they clearly believe that something is up there. There's a lot that will happen there. You know, Asimov outlaw, outlawed that essentially in his with his laws of robotics. He made it impossible, and unfortunately, that will not happen. That's not right. that we will not that we will not see. Um, in terms of the incredible benefits to society, these co-pilots or assistants, Mark described, tutors, the ability to incredibly to, to help people in learning and, 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 and training in school, I believe all of those things are going to happen. It will have a huge change in society that I think is a little, you know, we have to be thoughtful about that because we saw large benefits as an example with social media. We also see some downsides associated with it. And if, if we're spending all of our time as humans interacting with AIs, I do wonder what that will do to our relationship amongst all of us. And no one knows because no one has experienced it. Society is going to undergo a massive change. I do believe at some level that we are merging with these things. I mean, that's our long-term outcome is that they are becoming mm. part of us. It's already happening. All of us, you know, who can walk through a day without looking at your phone a thousand times a day? Kids on average spend, what, seven hours on, on a screen and 15 minutes outside playing these days. I mean, we are already engaging really deeply with these devices and we see some negative impacts from from the way people are developing and particularly children so those are questions that i think are still unanswered in general i believe that this will be incredible this will provide incredible benefits to society it's also interesting i'll just say one of the fascinating things that i've i've learned through this process of writing the book is that when I was a kid, I, re I read a whole lot of what Isaac Asimov wrote. He wrote over 450 books, 470 books almost. And I've had a chance to reread a bunch of his, of what his, he, he wrote. He had a very thoughtful, nuanced view of how robotics and society would interact. And in fact, in Asimov's writings, robots never established themselves on earth in a major way, not in society. They were out in the agricultural fields, but they were not part of day-to-day -day society. And in the long run, Asimov rejected robotics 
as as the future for humanity because he felt people would become too dependent on them. And he, in his stories, he talked about what happened as people got more and more dependent on robots and actually stopped innovating in his world. So it's really interesting because while I do agree that with Mark that all of these things will happen and I think they're super positive, I personally can't wait to have my calendar assistant to help me fill out my calendar and, 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 you know, and, and get things done. I had an executive assistant for most of my life and I don't have that now. And I, and there's a lot of benefit to having some help with that. But I do think there are going to be a lot of really interesting societal implications to this and the way people work with each other. And we'll right. have to see how that goes. So basically AI, I'm going to summarize your position as AI could save the world, but not necessarily. And it sort of depends on how we handle it. What does save the world mean? I mean, I save the world. I, what I actually struggle with that is the word save yeah. the world. With the exception, potentially, where I do think it is really interesting is going to be our relationship with China and how AI impacts on that. I think that's a fascinating dynamic that will happen you know, in part, you know, I will see some of it and younger people will see almost all of it, I think. But um, but I, I think that AI is part of our world and it is going to become an embedded part of society. Right. Certainly by 2030, we will not know how we live without it. That's yeah. for sure. Well, the That's question sure. really, I mean, I think what he's saying with save is improve it dramatically. While I everybody, it's the, it's the opposite of what people are saying, AI will destroy the world. He just used the opposite there. He's trying to write well, something. Well, it's a response to the doomerism. So, okay. Bob Muglia is here with us. He is former head of server and tools at Microsoft. I can't wait to speak with him about that on the other side of this break. Also former CEO of Snowflake and the author of the book, The Datapreneurs, The Promise of AI and the Creators Building Our Future. Well, very appropriate subtitle. We'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Bob Muglia, author of The Datapreneurs, The Promise of AI, and the creators building our future. Bob, let's do a little bit of uh, biographical stuff. I want to ask you some of the questions that I wanted to ask you when I was writing the book, and now we have a chance because we're sitting down with each other today. So here's the story as I heard it. Server and Tools built effectively servers for companies that they would maintain on-premise and built that into an exceptionally successful successful division, largely thanks to your leadership. In fact, it became so successful that when people started to think about the move to the cloud, Microsoft didn't want to go there. When Amazon built AWS, the company basically said, we're not, we don't believe in the cloud. 
in the beginning because it didn't want to lose. It had, I mean, you can cite the numbers, right? Multi-billion dollar revenue coming in from installing servers in people's offices. It did not want to be in a world where, you know, that business could be threatened by putting those servers, you know, outside the office. And even the customers, the chief information, or chief technology officers and chief information officers that were inside the company didn't want Microsoft to transition away from the old model because they would lose their autonomy and lose a lot of their power, which came with setting up and maintaining those servers in the office. So it was actually a big struggle inside the company to actually move to the cloud until Satya Nadella came in and said, all right, well, we know that this is where the future is heading. And that's sort of the origin. He ran servant tools and that's the origin story of Azure. That's what I've heard. I haven't been able to speak with Satya about it, but I do have you here with me today. So what is the actual story that happened inside Microsoft that gave birth to Azure? That's totally wrong. <laughs> Why do we start by saying that? It's totally well, I wish wrong. you would have picked up the phone before the book went out, but okay, let's hear it. The, um, <laughs> the reality was that, that uh, Microsoft, you know, while Steve ran Microsoft, it was Windows-centric. Yeah. Windows, but Windows included Windows Server to Steve, right? And in fact, if in fact, you know, he and he and Bill, who was still involved, you know, in, in, at the company as a director at that point, um, uh, uh, were very aware. They they were always very paranoid, right? They're, they they were the classic only the paranoid survive, and so they were looking hard at what was happening at AWS, and they saw that the, this the writing on the wall. In two thousand nine, I think it was two thousand nine. Ralph Harms, um, who was working in the um, business development area and strategy area wrote a paper about how many data centers there would be in the world and they you know how many companies that ran data centers there would be in the world and they had it you know at you know a handfuls a handful and the logic was it would all consolidate into these large systems because these large data centers in, cl- in the cloud because of the cost economics associated with it i didn't fully agree with with rolf because i didn't because i thought that that private clouds would be meaningful um uh and that could have happened potentially, but I actually think what happened in the world was that um, Microsoft shifted in that 2008-2009 time period to move towards the cloud, and our strategy was Azure. It was Azure, no question about it. And that was under Steve, and that was under me. In fact, we moved. You know, Azure was originally developed under Ray Ozzy, and it was developed in a in a group that was you know sort of not part of Server and Tools. And in my last year at the company, um, in, in 2010, really, that was the last year I was, I left in 2011, but the last year I was really running the division was 20, 2010, because Satya took over in February of 2011. Um, uh, it was, it was the, you know, the, the Azure group worked for me. At that time, it was Windows Azure, though. Wow. Okay. Because Steve had a Windows-centric view of the world. And here's the crazy thing about it. And here's what was going on. The group that built Windows Azure built a product that did not run Linux and it did not run Windows Server. Let me let me say that again. It didn't run. Windows Azure in 2010 did not run the version of Windows Server that we sold in retail. Hmm. And of course, ran just fine in AWS. And so we built the wrong product. 
we built a pass product that was targeted at, uh, at, at essentially internally, it was mostly internally targeted at first. And with the idea that we could sell these internal services that were a whole new generation, that's not what happened. What happened was Amazon was infrastructure as a service and we built incorrectly uh, uh, a platform as a service pass and literally built a system that in 2010 was incompatible with everything on the planet. So okay. we were, we're making, we're totally losing. In fact, I, my, my leaving Microsoft was really about that. And my belief as to where that needed to go, which was to be more compatible. And the leader of that group disagreed with me. And Steve, Steve actually sided with that leader. And, and that was what caused me to leave the company. That's the time that, that, that I left, I decided to leave Microsoft. And, uh, uh, what happened was that, that fortunately, um, you know, when Steve asked me who he thought should replace me, I said, you know, the, there's one guy to do it. And that's his name is Sacha. Mm-hmm. And Sacha replaced me in, in February 2012 and immediately was able to affect the strategy I was unable to affect. I mean, in essence, the person that I was struggling with left the company. Okay. Okay. Because he wanted the job and he didn't get it, which is a good thing. And um, and what happened is Sacha being the new guy in there was was free to pursue the correct strategy. Sacha and I were whole, totally aligned on that strategy. I've never had one ounce of dis- misalignment with Sacha. I definitely had misalignment with Steve back in 2010. Um, but I think everyone would agree that in fact, in fact, building a a infrastructure as a service cloud. And then adding past services on top of that was the way to go. I mean, we literally just built the wrong product. And it took, and what, what, and, and Sacha did some really good things. I mean, in particular, he put Scott Guthrie in charge of, of, of that. And that was, you know, I was not free to do that at the time. I mean, it was literally not one of my choices. Right. Um, I mean, and because the person who was running it was in that job and Steve had a strong relationship. And, so, and once Scott took over, all the right things happened. I mean, basically, at that point, the, the product went great, you know, went in the right directions. So, you know, kudos to Satya for doing all of that. But it really wasn't a disagreement. It wasn't that disagreement. It was really a disagreement about infrastructure. It was about a weird technical thing. Mostly it was about people, honestly. These things are always, ultimately, they come down to disagreements with people. And Steve was betting on one guy. And frankly, he made the wrong bet. Yeah. And this is sort of like the origin story of cloud and, and really Microsoft's reinvention. So... Appreciate you telling us. I'm curious, like what you think, what you think the lessons have been for Satya inside that company about how important it was for Microsoft to reinvent beyond, because, you know, this is another thing that I I learned that windows and cloud are sort of two different, they're sort of competing in some ways. Because when, if you make everything available on the browser, for instance, then it doesn't really matter what operating system you use. So we succeeded to killing, you know, one of the, one of the great, you know, the saddest stories of Microsoft history was, you know, we're getting now into some, this, none of this is covered in the book. We're talking about the, 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 you know, the issues that Microsoft had. One of the saddest stories, in my opinion, that, that ever happened at Microsoft was the death, of the client API, the windows API. And, you know, to me, the event that did it was when, when we killed Silverlight. Um, I don't know if you remember, Scott Guthrie had built Silverlight. It was a cross-platform. It was, it was a flash, comp- you know, we, Steve, you, Steve misunderstood it. It was, a, it was, he viewed it as a flash competitor because it actually ran on the Macintosh, but it was a native Windows.NET API to oh. write Windows applications. 
And sadly, I was actually was forced to kill it. I mean, it was one of the saddest days of my career. It was late in my career at Microsoft. And we went down. What happened is we went down. When we killed it, we killed all momentum that existed on development for Windows. And we were never able to, to regain that. So the primary development of Windows programs are browser programs. And we really lost, we lost all developer traction on the client in that, in that time frame. And what that means really is that Windows is really a device. It's, it's an operating system that runs on a device, but the apps that run on Windows, by and large today, what people use mostly are browser apps, right. I mean, other than Office, basically. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I mean, on Mac as well, largely that's the case. It's, it is the case on the yeah. Mac and the Mac as well. It is it's true. But but it but what was different is that we had a huge developer franchise that we threw away. Right. And and that that was what that's what that was really a sad, that was a sad day. But okay, we could go on that forever. So the question I have for you is about Satya, which is do you think he learned some lessons about reinvention? Sure. That that he's carried through to the that he's carried through to the CEO job. And I'm cuz that that is sort of like my way of asking what do you make of this basic re- basically reinvention of Microsoft through AI right now? I mean, it's not like a completely discarding of the old model, but it's a very big bet on a new technology. So what's your perspective on all this? Well, I have infinite respect for Satya. I mean, I sometimes call him the Yoda of the technology <laughs> industry. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of, there's a lot of truth to that. He, you know, the move that he has made, I mean, I think he's done a lot of good things in terms of understanding that Microsoft is first and foremost a services company. And that means that you deliver your, your product across every device. They understand that now. They really do understand that now. They don't always execute as well on it as I'd like them to, but they definitely understand. They definitely understand that now. And and Satya has that religion in place. What he was able to do in building the relationship with Sam Altman and and OpenAI was one of the most amazing moves in you know in that I've ever seen a leader do in in, in the technology industry in my career. You know, if you'd asked anyone two years ago, or even a year ago, frankly, even a year ago, frankly, you know, wh- where was Microsoft fit in the technology race for AI? Most people would have put them, you know, relatively low on the stack. They wouldn't have said, you know, that Microsoft is a leader. And now, you know, everyone is acknowledging them in a leadership role. And they really pulled the table. You know, he really he really was able to change the game on Google. And um, and I think it was Google's reticence to leverage some of this technology that that want and a little bit of conservatism that put them in this position. I think what he's doing, what Satya is doing across across Microsoft and the apps, is exactly the right thing to do. By working with OpenAI, they got a huge head start because they had access to these models basically a full year before any of the rest of us did. And so, you know, that's put them in an incredibly strong position to release a whole plethora of products this year that we'll see. And I think we'll see some incredible new things coming from them. So I'm, I wait, wait, do you have, do you have inside knowledge of what's coming? Can you share some of it? Some of it I do then the things I do, I can't share because I do work with those guys. Most of, you know, I'm not as close (laughs) to the office group. What I'm most interested in is what the office group is doing, to be honest. And that's mostly just personally. What about an office is, is interesting. I mean, Google did just release, and I think this is amazing. I can't wait to use this. In Google Docs, apparently there's this button that you can hit that's experimental now, but eventually it's going to roll out to everyone where you're like writing a document and it just finishes it for you. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Well, like the one thing that certainly what the kind of stuff I've seen the Microsoft announce, what I think is mind blowing is Teams 
we'll we'll do a summary of the meeting. You know, your meeting notes. It will right. write up your meeting notes and summarize the action items at the end of a meeting by taking the verbal. Tra- I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Taking taking the voice, transcribing that into English text, and then using you know using GPT to summarize it. It's a pretty amazing, pretty amazing thing. And so I look forward to seeing things like that. Um, having been in so many meetings where note taking wasn't done or it was done incorrectly. Well, I would love that, but it has to teams. It's got to be faster. If teams could be faster and put this into place, that would be interesting. But you put teams when you next say to faster. I don't know what you. What do you mean by I teams mean, has to, the, be to use Teams versus use Zoom? Teams is slow compared to Zoom, and I don't even like Zoom. Okay. Anyway, last question for you. <laughs> you wrote candidly about. And, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but candidly about being pushed out as CEO of, of Snowflake because they wanted someone to take the company public. Talk a little bit about what happened and why you felt ready to write about it. Well, I mean, it's been, you know, at this point, it's four years. It's a long, it's a long time. So, uh, you know, it was, it was tough. It was a tough transition for me. You know, I mean, ultimately what happens is what always happens, these things, which is disagreement between people. That's always the root of this. And in this case, I mean, the board at Snowflake, you know, had a real long-term relationship with Frank Slootman, and they saw what Frank could do in terms of taking companies public, and the, the board all wanted, would love to, wanted to have Frank in that role. So that's what caused the transition. You know, it was partially because there were issues, from people issues between me and some of the board members, and partially because the board really had a candidate that they could, that they could put in the role. Um, it was a tough transition for me, and it took me a while to, you know, to get fully back and, and doing things. But pretty quickly, I started working with small companies. I realized that through that, that although I worked at, at a huge company, Microsoft, for most of my career, I was actually doing entrepreneurial work while I was at Microsoft. And I was often going to the new thing and building the new thing at Microsoft. And that's why I had connected with all these entrepreneurs around data and ultimately the datapreneurs. Um, and so I realized that there was a good opportunity to help people in the early stages of companies. And that's what I've been doing mostly for the last four years. I'm on a handful of, of small private boards um, a full handful, by the way, five of them. Um, so they keep me pretty busy and, and, you know, and I'm, I still stay very connected with the industry. Um, so yeah, that's what happened. The book is the datapreneurs, the promise of AI and the creators building our future. It's available in all bookstores right now. So go check it out. Bob Muglia. Thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate having you here. Thanks. I really enjoyed the conversation. I did as well. And great to finally get the, the true inside story of the so the battle inside server and tools and the emergence of Satya. So thank Sorry you. Sorry about that. No, Sorry no apologies that. necessary. We had a great podcast. So really appreciate that. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Ranjan Roy and I will be back again on Friday to talk about the week's news. And you can stay tuned for our next flagship interview this upcoming Wednesday. I've got some really good ones to announce and I'll do it. Well, let's try to aim for Friday. I'll do it on Friday. All right. Thanks, Nate Gwatney, for handling the audio LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network. And all of you, the listeners, we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. Mm-hmm.